Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Good morning, Epiphany Church. It's our sixth Sunday service together on the podcast, and it's a joy to be with you this morning. This week, after input from church and the church's leadership from the diocese and a number of other church coaches essentially help wherever we could find it, I am excited to announce season two of our Cross and Corona ministry has arrived. What is season two of our Cross and Corona ministry? Well, Since we're past the initial shock of this stay-at-home season and we've made it through Easter, it's time to start asking how we can continue to do what God has called Epiphany to do in the circumstance that God has placed us in. We are a church that God has called to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. And after some prayerful consideration, friends, we're going to start moving in that direction helping people discover and rediscover the love of God in this Christian gospel of ours. One part of that transition is going to be a new sermon series, which we are beginning today. It's a sermon series inspired by one of the big baddies of the early church, a sermon series that will help us see that the whole of the scripture is unified in portraying of a loving God, and that the whole of scripture is unified in pointing to the Christian gospel. It's a sermon series that will hopefully give you some new tools to help you preach the gospel to yourself in a time of isolation. What else does our Season 2 of Cross and Corona ministry look like? Stay tuned after the service this morning for more information about Season 2 projects. Um, I've got a lot of info to share about how we're going to move forward over the coming weeks, and there's even a thought or two about how we might begin to reopen uh, as the uh, government and as the bishop allows. But that's for later. Right now, let's jump into the service today. That's the most important thing, that we worship God, and that we say our prayers, we say our confession, and give him thanks for the saving work he's done. And so let's jump in today, the second Sunday after Easter. The Lord is risen indeed, my friends. Alleluia. Alleluia. Good morning. This is Jay Springer. Here's a confession of sin today. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. This is Jackson Arango. Hope everyone's doing good at home. Uh, Our psalm for today is Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he heard the voice of my prayer, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, and the pains of the grave laid hold of me. I suffered trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. 
Indeed, our God is full of compassion. The Lord preserves the simple. I was in misery, and he helped me. Turn again to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has rewarded you. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, and therefore will, will I speak. I am greatly troubled. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I give unto the Lord for all the benefits that he has done unto me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord in the presence of all his people. Dear in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant and the child of your handmaid. You have broken my bonds asunder. I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord in the sight of all of his people in the courts of the Lord's house. Good morning. This is Denny Hove. Our Bible passage this morning is Genesis 1, verse 1, through Genesis 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And he set them in the expanse of heaven to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, 
and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestocks, creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The Word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our new sermon series comes to us today from the uh, heretic named Marcion. Marcion. And I'm going to tell you the story of Marcion this morning because I think he's like a top three heretic in the history of the church. Someone whose heresy was so consequential and so impactful to the church that we actually have him to thank a little bit, despite his heterodox theology, because the church kind of unified against him to, to, to explain just how wrong he was and what he was sharing. And the story goes like this, that Marcion uh, was from a uh, town on the north of Turkey called Sinope. Uh, maybe I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. It could be Sinope, but I'm pretty sure it's Sinope. And Marcion was born to one of the first bishops in the entire church in this city of Sinope. And uh, Marcion, you know, he grew up along the Black Sea. And so he was a seafarer or a mariner by trade, uh, meaning that he took ships out onto the uh, Black Sea and all over the place to, to transport things. And Whatever his occupation and whatever his job looked like, Marcion became quite wealthy. And he grew so wealthy that he eventually traveled to Rome 
and he gave the church in Rome a sizable donation. Like today, it would be something like $200,000. It was a very large amount. And that's a huge donation to a relatively young church that's only 100 years old or so at this point. This is like the year uh, 140-ish. But while he was in Rome, while he was with the church there, he began to spout off some crazy talk. And I mean wild stuff. And, And his heresy, it was rooted in the belief that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were not the same God. They weren't the same guy. Why should we even bother with the Old Testament, asked Marcion. It's full of wrath and anger, and that guy's just a total whack job, and he's capricious, and and he's not worthy of our worship. But Jesus, he's a big deal. He is full of grace and love. And, And so why don't we just ditch the Old Testament? Why do we even bother with it? And that is, of course, uh, what Marcion's teaching was. And he had other things with that, too. Like, there, there's one high God, and the Old Testament God is different from the, the high God. And it, but, but the basics are there. That the Old Testament God is not someone to worship or to revere or to take seriously. Uh, and that we should just get rid of the whole Old Testament altogether. And when the church in Rome heard him speak, when they heard him share this idea... Uh, they said uh, no, and they kicked him out. They excommunicated him. He wasn't allowed to join the church and participate in communion because his beliefs were so wrong and so unorthodox. It's like you don't belong here. They they literally they excommunicated Marcion and they gave him back this massive donation that he gave, and they said, "Look, man, hit the road." You are not a Christian if you don't bring the Old Testament into this. And this is the year 144 AD. This is all happening. And I tell you this to say that for nearly 2,000 years, give or take like one century in the mix, but you know, since the very beginning, Christians have asserted to the point of kicking people out of the church that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament that they're two stories about the same divine being, and that the Old Testament is an accurate and divinely sanctioned record of the acts of this one God, two testaments, three persons, and that the Old Testament is not just helpful, but if you are a Christian, the Old Testament is necessary for your life. And yet, like the world's most annoying game of whack-a-mole, This heresy reappears time and time again throughout the history of the world. Uh, Here's what famed atheist Richard Dawkins uh, had to say about the God of the Old Testament. He said, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A pity, unfit, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I mean, come on, Dawkins, tell us how you really feel. And and it's not just the sort of neo-atheist types who are really into bringing the God of the Old Testament down. Uh, You have someone like a public academician and, and public speaker like a Jordan Peterson, Um, who you may not know, he may not be in your world, but he's a psychology professor who's kind of moved into like TED Talk levels of of popularity. 
a public intellectual of sorts. And, and he had this to say. He said, you know, God in the Old Testament is frequently cruel, arbitrary, demanding, and paradoxical, which is one of the things that really gives the book life. It wasn't edited by a committee that was concerned with not offending anyone, that's for sure. Um, but those men you see are outside of the church. They aren't within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy to begin with, so we don't need to worry about them necessarily. But my fear, and the reason I'm talking to you all about Marcion, is my fear is that the contemporary American church has, they've not so much embraced Marcion's theology, but they might have embraced some of his practices, that they may have become functional Marcionites. And I've met Christians in my life who feel so very comfortable discussing the Gospels, but they hesitate to jump in with a discussion of what happens after the book of Exodus. And people feel very comfortable. They feel very comfortable with the theology of grace in the New Testament, but they don't feel comfortable outlining a theology of grace that comes from the Old Testament. And people are fine when it comes to talking about God's grace and when it comes to the New Testament's problems like disunified churches and conflicts about which meats are okay to eat if they've been sacrificed to pagan gods. But when you look at the Old Testament, right, and you start giving grace to, to people like rapists and murderers and deceivers and liars and people who kill their own family members, suddenly we, we aren't so gung-ho about grace. We get a little gun-shy when the Old Testament really ups the ante about who is going to receive forgiveness and grace. Our next sermon series, my dear friends, is going to be about this very subject. I want to kick it old school with you. I want to take it back to the Old Testament. In fact, to quote Coldplay, we're going to go back to the start. Um, I want to share with you over the next few weeks, friends, a sermon series I'm calling The Gospel According to Genesis. The Gospel According to Genesis. Because maybe I can convince you that the Old Testament is as ripe a garden for the gospel uh, to grow in and to be proclaimed from as the New Testament epistles. And maybe in this time together, we can finally make progress at playing our game of Marcionite whack-a-mole. And, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a hopeful guy, friends. I'm swinging for the fences. And maybe as a result of this, I can inspire you to spend more time in the Old Testament. And if you do, you might discover or rediscover uh, the love of God in the Christian gospel um, prefigured um, in a time before Jesus' death and resurrection. You can see the unconditional love of God manifesting itself in the Old Testament. Uh, guys, I'm actually really pumped. I'm very excited about this series, and I hope you are too, because some of these great old stories, stories you knew from Bible school, once you realize that the same Christian gospel that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same loving God who is at work in the Old Testament, these stories, these things that you are familiar with will take new life. And you will find new ways to connect with God that you perhaps had overlooked before. And so, of course, when you talk about going to the beginning and starting at the beginning, you go all the way back to the very beginning. The beginning of the world, the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Maybe the most famous passage in all of scripture. And you might be expecting a conversation in Genesis 1 to be about the length of a day in the book of Genesis, right? Is a Genesis day literally a 24-hour period? And you, this is something the church fought about for a number of years, so you wouldn't be 
off for expecting it. And you might be expecting a sermon about the goodness of God's creation, how it is important for us to have dominion over creation and steward it in such a way that it flourishes and is bountiful. Um, that you might inspect, you might expect a little bit of environmentalism. And you might even expect a homily about the power of God, the, the great and glorious power of God, that he could create the universe simply by willing and speaking it into existence, that his word and his intent is all that is needed for the universe to exist. And I'm going to tell your friends that, um, okay, yes, those things are, are, are relatable. Um, should we, um, should we continue to, to ask whether, you know, Genesis day is 24 hours? Sure. Do we have a responsibility to treat the environment? Uh, well, yes. Is God profoundly awesome and powerful that he can just create anything he wants to? Absolutely. But every one of those sermons I could preach to you today misses the point entirely. They confuse the forest and the trees, as they say. They can't see the forest for the trees. Um, but what we do see in Genesis 1 is a story of creation that is about God creating a universe which is good. And I cannot press upon you um, how powerful and how different that is than other creation stories that you're going to run into, okay? Um, that, that there is and there exists a God who created a, 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 a creation that is good, that that God exists is completely different than the creation myths of other um, ancient Semitic world uh, cultures, and it's completely different uh, from the creation uh, stories that our own culture tells. So I'm going to talk about that now, because you see Israel's neighbors, um, it's not as if they just didn't have their own creation myths, um, and I don't have time to get into all of them today, but um, I am going to talk to you about one in particular, very famous one. Uh, because uh, the Babylonians, right, the Babylonian Empire, they had a creation myth. And we know that creation myth. We found it. We have archaeologists who have it. And it's called the Enuma Elish. Okay? Maybe you've heard of the Enuma Elish. Sometimes it's called the Enuma Elish, but, you know, however you want to do that. And uh, I'm going to read to you the first uh, few lines of the creation story from an the Enuma Elish. Not the Bible one, but, but this is what, if you were growing up in the Babylonian Empire and you went to Babylonian church, this is what you would have heard. When on high the heaven had not been named, firm ground below had not been called by name, not but primordial Apsu, their begetter, and Mumutiamat, she who bore them all, their waters commingling as a single body. No reed hut had been matted, no marshland had appeared, when no gods whatsoever had been brought into being, uncalled by name, their destinies undetermined. Then it was that the gods were formed within them. So so in that story, right, we, we, we see something about the nature of the universe, that there are these sort of two primordial gods and there is sort of you know, this above and below, and what these sort of primary gods do is create a whole pantheon of lesser gods underneath them. And the rest of the Enuma Elish is a story about this great heavenly war, right? Because what happens? The, the god Absu um, is assassinated, and the ancient god Tiamat is overthrown by these second-tier creator gods um, led by the god Marduk. And Marduk is sort of now the chief god. He's the chief god status on the earth. And um, 
he's the the god of the earth and the god of the cosmos and he's the head of it all so marduk wins and there's at least 900 gods in this creation story and some of them are in heaven and some of them are on earth but throughout the story the natural world that we know is created as a byproduct of the violence of these gods um that the the god tiamat is is destroyed she is killed he is killed the god tiamat is killed and the sky is made from half of Tiamat's corpse. And that's a place where a bunch of gods live and hang out. And then Marduk, he creates this world um, to show off his power. The rivers and the marshes and, and most of the geography and topography we know. And to top it all off, humankind is created by this god Marduk. And the way they do that is they sacrifice one of the various other minor gods and use his blood to create humankind. And according to the Enuma Elish, the purpose of humankind is to do the work of the gods so that the gods will have rest from their labors. Here's the reading from the Enuma Elish. Uh, they bound him, this is the, the god that they're going to sacrifice, and held him in front of the god Ea. There's another god in the story. Again, there's a lot of these gods. And they imposed the penalty on him and cut off his blood he created mankind from his blood and imposed the toil of the gods on man and released the gods from it. I'm oversimplifying a bit here, um, but notice a few things. This god, the god of Babylon, and everyone else's um, gods bow before this god, this god Marduk, he's like the winner. He is the victor. He is the one who's beaten everybody else. And um, matter in this story is eternal. Heaven on high and the firm ground below. It's it's an eternal thing. Uh, it, these things pre-exist history. And humans exist so that the gods can be lazy and not have to work. And um, that the toil of the gods has been imposed upon man. And later on in the story, we find that one of the things that Marduk wants the world to do is Marduk is very into having the city called Babylon established and that it should be the ruler of the world. And so this god sort of grants divine blessing on the Babylonians to go conquer and subdue the world because they worship Marduk. And so that is a very, very basic outline of what you're going to get. If you have the creation story and you're going to church in ancient Babylon and you're going to Sunday school in Babylonian church, that's the story you're going to get. Uh, that the gods are big, the gods win, Babylon is the best, and your job is to do the work of the gods so that the gods don't have to do them. Let's compare the creation of the Babylonian myth to the creation of the Hebrew god. Um, let's compare the Enuma Elish to Genesis chapter 1 and see what we see as something different. How does it start? You can probably say it with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In contrast to the Babylonian story, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Christians, our God, created everything. Uh, theologians say that this creation is ex nihilo, out of nothing. There existed nothing in the universe outside of God himself, perhaps. There existed no universe, no matter, no time, nor space, and then God created it. There was nothing, and then God made something. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So God creates light, right? And he creates light, and light, you see, isn't value neutral. Um, it's not like, um, uh, uh, I don't know, what's value neutral? The color gray. It's, it's not great, but it's not bad. It's value neutral. God creates light and says, this is good. This is good. And there's now darkness too. Now notice darkness does not actually get called good. God only calls the light good. That's very interesting. And so now there's darkness and now there's uh, night and day, right? There was morning and there was evening the first day. And God goes on to create heaven and earth and seas and vegetation and sun and moon and stars and bugs and fish and birds and mammals and reptiles. And with every new thing he makes, God says, it's all good. The, the sky is good. The animals are good. The sun and the moon are good. They're not byproducts of some great war in heaven. They are not the torn in half corpses of defeated deities. There is one God and he created a good world. Um, Genesis even goes on to say that God blesses the animals and the creepy things in the fish. He blesses them. He blesses them so that they may be fruitful and multiply. And then the crowning achievement of it all, the, the last thing that God creates is that he creates humankind. Let's read the text. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And at this point, of course, God's finished. He looks at it all together, the earth, the sky, the space, dung beetles and flounders dogs and stars and rhubarb and giraffes and palm trees and ocean foam and goldfinches and snow and camels. And he says that all of it is very good. Not just good. He says it's very good. So what is the gospel according to Genesis chapter one? The gospel is that since the very foundation of the universe, God has blessed the earth and all of creation and human beings, and he said to them, it's good. It's good. It's very good. You're not made by God to be some sort of slave laborer so that God can kick back on the seventh day of creation and put his feet up while you do all his dirty work. You were not created by God to suffer endlessly in a universe that is uncaring about whether you live or die. The gospel, according to Genesis, is that goodness is, was, is built into the fabric of creation. And despite the events of later chapters to come in Genesis, the original intent of God, the heart of God, what we learn about his character is that God wants to set up a universe in which people are happy, healthy, free from suffering. God's original plan for the universe was good. So there is no bored and overworked pantheon of deities looking to offload their chores onto human drones. There is not one particular ancient Near East city-state that God wishes to establish as his headquarters in the creation of uh, the universe in the Genesis story. 
The Genesis story is only this. A loving God took painstaking care to make a very good world for you and I to inhabit. The great reveal of Genesis 1 isn't that God is powerful, it isn't that God is an environmentalist, it isn't that God gave us a law to procreate or tend his Edenic garden. The great reveal of Genesis 1 is that the nature of God's character is to create good things. That God is good. That is the great reveal of Genesis chapter 1. And that's important to remember. Um, and that's important to remember because in our own time, we don't compete with the myths of Tiamat and Absu, but we do have our own creation myths. Some might say, for example, that God created the world, but the world is not good. Um, that the world is subject to decay and death, and it's been that way, and God's a monster for creating this world. Um, before the virus hit this year, you might remember a, a viral story about a man in India uh, who went to sue his parents for giving birth to him. And this young man, he's in his late 20s, um, is part of a school of thought known as antinatalism. Someone who believes that the world is so full of suffering and hardship that existence is not worth it. And so, as an expression of his belief, he is suing his parents for giving birth to him without his consent. Um, his parents, by the way, are both lawyers, and, and they've both responded to the threat of lawsuit in, in, from their son in high spirits. They're like, look, he's a precocious guy. We kind of get it. This is part of his character. Don't, don't, don't think too hard about it. But to date, the young man has not found a lawyer that will take his case, and so we will never know whether or not uh, the parents are liable for the non-consensual creation of their son. Uh, but for others, um, all of creation is a consequence of totally natural forces. Um, evolution and time and probability. And it's not that we're made in God's image, but we are simply the end point of a massive cause and effect game that goes back about a billion years or so. And there is no good or bad in this universe. It simply is. And our existence is defined by doing the things which our brains have considered to be pleasurable. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And you may remember the famous poem by the writer Stephen Crane titled, A Man Said to the Universe. Do you remember this poem? A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact has not created in thee a sense of obligation. Hold next to the cold, uncaring universe of Stephen Crane the heavenly bloodbath and the servitude of, of Babylonians and the cruel and suffering of, of the antinatalist creation myth. And what you see is that all of these creation myths are pure creation myths. Um, they, they, they are all stories about uh, human beings being slaves. Uh, they are unimportant. They are dispensable. And our lives have zero meaning. And we simply exist in a world where survival of the fittest is the only thing that keeps us going. So see how the God of Israel, the God of Genesis, the God of the Christians and the Hebrews builds a universe that is defined by the good. See how the God of Israel creates a universe in which existence is a gift. Um, existence is a gift, right? You didn't earn your existence. Uh, you don't deserve your existence. Um, that's something that, um, that this guy suing his parents actually kind of gets right. You didn't even consent to your own existence. 
Your existence was given to you by your parents, but ultimately, your existence is given to you by the God of the universe. And your existence, your life, was intended to be experienced in a world defined by that which is good and very good. Your life was meant to be lived in a world so full of divine goodness that God has to take the seventh day to simply kick back and admire that which he has created. And if something is so good that the God of the universe takes a day to look back and admire at, and, and, and look at and gaze upon what he has done with pleasure, I gotta tell you, that sounds like a pretty good world for us to inhabit. The gift of life, friends, is given to the undeserving. A world, friends, that is made to be good, given to people who can't even consent to their own creation. Do you hear the echoes of the Christian gospel here? It's not difficult to see that the God who made the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 would also be very interested in making all things new in Revelation 21 at the other end of the Bible. It's not that difficult to see a God who would simply give and create and make good things and give them away to people who don't deserve them. You see that, friends, in Genesis chapter 1, just like you see it in how God gave his son on the cross for the people of the world to redeem them from their sins and promise them freedom from death. Friends, Marcion's problem wasn't just that his theology was wrong. Marcion's problem was that he was an idiot. <laughs> Marcion's problem was that he couldn't see right there plain in the text that the same God who made the world is the same God who saved the world. The same God who gave us the gift of life and the same God who um, would, would give us this gift of life is the same God who would give up his life and breath on the cross to save it. And the same God who called human beings good and blessed them, that's the same God who took on human flesh to dwell among them, to walk with them in the garden and to walk with them on the road to their suffering on the cross of the, the place called the skull Golgotha. So when things do go off the rails as they do a few chapters later on, when the humans of Genesis reject the good gift of existence and try to swap it out for a power grab at divine power. We should not be surprised to find that the good creating character of God has a good ending in store for the people he created. We may not know or see that the world around us is good right now. Something has happened that is terrible in the history of humankind. Something terrible has happened. Um, that has, has taken the world and moved it from good and very good to in need, desperate need of saving. But know that your maker is not the uncaring universe devoid of obligation. Know that your maker is not a masochist who brought you into the world to suffer. Your maker is not your slave driver the person who is giving you tasks to do so that they can kick their feet up and drink lemonade on a hot summer day. Friends, your maker is your redeemer who only intends good things for you in this life and the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. This is Bud Carnes, and would you join me in saying the Apostles' Creed? 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, everyone. This is Candy Springer. Would you pray with me, please? O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins. Banish our fears. Make us bold to praise you and to do your will. And steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on the last great day. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We also remember those on Epiphany's prayer list. The Walker family, Joanne Palmer, Ligonier Camp and Conference, Pine Springs Camp, and those among us who have asked for anonymous prayer. Almighty God, we entrust all who are dear to us, especially those on our church prayer list, to your never-failing care and love for this life and the life to come, knowing that you are doing for them better things than we can desire or pray for. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. O God, almighty and merciful, you heal the brokenhearted and turn the sadness of the sorrowful to joy. Let your fatherly goodness be upon all whom you have made. Cheer with hope all who are discouraged and downcast. And by your heavenly grace, Preserve from falling those whose poverty tempts them to sin. Though they be troubled on every side, suffer them not to be distressed. Though they are perplexed, save them from despair. Grant this, O Lord, for the love of him who for our sakes became poor, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge of and love of you. For the honor of your name, amen. Almighty God, 
you have given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplications to you. And you have promised through your well-beloved Son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you will grant their the requests. Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions as may be best for us, granting us this world knowledge of your truth, and in the age to come, life everlasting. Amen. The Gospel According to Genesis. That's our next sermon series. And look, the sermon series, I think, is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to get into some really serious, deep Bible stories. We're going to talk about some R-rated topics. We're going to talk about some goofy and different topics. We're going to talk about some deeply affecting topics, too. And I think what we'll see is that the God of the book of Genesis, despite his reputation for capricious wrath, is actually a pretty patient God who knows what it's like to work with sinners. So what else is going to make up season two of our Crossing Corona ministry? Well, it starts with what we don't know, and it ends with what we do know. Let me speak a little bit about those two things. Here's what we don't know. We don't know how long we're going to remain under the state's stay-at-home order. The current order has been extended till May the 8th, but we don't know whether or not the order will be extended again or not. We know that the governor has talked about opening up other parts of the state uh, to more open places, but... That hasn't been the case for Westmoreland County. We do not know what the initial phases of this reconnection will look like after this May 8th deadline has passed. And we don't know how long it's going to be until we're able to meet for a traditional Sunday service. Here's what we think we know. We know, we think we know, that plans to end stay-at-home orders, um, the state of Pennsylvania is organized into this red and yellow and green traffic light scale. These plans will likely allow for small groups of us to reconnect before we are allowed to reconnect on a Sunday morning proper to have normal Sunday services. It is also likely to be the case that actual church buildings will remain closed per diocesan and state orders for some time. The bishop has communicated to the clergy of the diocese that in-person worship services will not be the first part of church life to return. While some businesses may reopen, including in-person retail, uh, we are still expecting to see things like masks at the grocery stores, curbside and takeout at restaurants, and social distancing policies being encouraged for some time to come. This is what we think we know, of course. It could change. We, we do not know what tomorrow will bring, right, from the, from the Easter Sunday service. But now, here's what I want to tell you about what I do know. Here's what I do know. Um, I've been in contact with most members of Epiphany from week to week, and I want to share with you how resilient and gracious and loving this congregation is. It, it truly is. When I call to check in on you, um, you not only check in on me to ask how Beth and Tom and I have been faring, but you're asking about each other too. You're saying, how's the rest of the church? Is everyone else faring well? Is there anyone who needs help? 
Uh, can I buy groceries? Can I deliver them to anyone? Just tell me how I can be helpful because I love my church and I love the people in it and I want to be helpful. And I also know that members of Epiphany, and I know this for certain, um, are growing tired and restless. Many of us continue to bear under these strenuous and difficult conditions. Some of us are working in these frontline professions. And some of us are struggling to adapt at new technologies uh, that are needed for our work-at-home lives. We miss our families. We miss seeing people's facial expressions behind their masks when we go to the grocery store. We miss haircuts. And we've got anger, and we've got exhaustion, and we've got cabin fever. And if you're not experiencing one of those three things, you're experiencing all three together. And while the physical health of the congregation is in fine shape, give or take a bunch of, you know, the, the coronavirus 15, right? Um, our collective emotional and spiritual health is being strained. And that is something I know for certain after talking to the members of the church. And so the question that is posed to all of us then is this. What does ministry look like when we're cooped up and angry and exhausted and uncertain about what the future is going to bring? And the answer is connection and empathy and grace, going above and beyond to serve others and to care for their well-being, and, a, and perhaps most importantly, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to each other. Um, the author of Hebrews says that we are to encourage each other daily so that we may not grow weak in this work of ours. And so we do this connecting and empathy and grace and preaching the gospel to each other in a way that as soon as we are allowed to reconnect, we can transition the ministry from a digital setting to an interpersonal setting. Um, that we can do what we're doing now, but we can do it online and in person. And so for our next season of ministry, we're going to focus on building small group fellowship, what I'm calling check-in groups. And these are little fellowships that can form and begin meeting digitally. Uh, and then as soon as they're allowed, as soon as the restrictions are lifted, they can transition to meeting in person. Members of Epiphany will have the opportunity to join two different small groups, which at first are going to be organized through the church's Zoom account. Um, Zoom is the, the video conferencing web service. And so the check-in groups are going to start off in the structured format um, and we're, we're going to share highlights, we're going to share lowlights, and we're going to share a prayer request. Then we're going to pray together. That's all we're going to do um, for the, the beginning. And once these groups are established, we'll also use our check-in groups as opportunities to grow together in our faith. Does one group want to start reading and sharing through a book of the Bible? Great, let's do it. Does another check-in group want to do a Bible study together or a book study of something relevant about maybe theology and viruses and church history or maybe a study on how to best help their neighbors that are economically struggling in a time like this? Great. Book studies are awesome. Let's make it happen. Does a group want to start doing a morning or evening prayer together and getting prayer books and making it happen? I am all for it. Let's make it happen. But for now, the most important thing is that we as a church get together, and instead of having Pastor Brian communicate and check and play the middle and the in-between, we all get a chance to check in with each other. So uh, grab a pen and paper, write this down. Uh, I'm going to vamp for a second here, but this will be out in a church email soon too, so you know, you'll have access. Our first two check-in groups are going to be meeting this week, the week of April 26th. 
And the first will be Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And the second will be Thursday evening at 7 o'clock. So Tuesday at 3, Thursday at 7. If we need more, we'll make more groups. Not a problem. But the hope and goal of our check-in groups is to create an opportunity for all of us to check in with each other. Right now, Epiphany does not need grocery runs. Epiphany does not need toilet paper. Epiphany doesn't need eggs. We have that covered. What we need is each other. What else are we going to do in this season two? Well, the plans are still coming together, but we're looking at ways to help our local business community here in Ligonier to help the, the shops in town. We're looking at uh, another drive-in service to be done with some of the other churches in the area at the end of May or early June. And uh, uh, by the way, we're looking for ways to bring back a special quarantine edition of Epiphany's Famous Pizza Nights too. Stay tuned to the church email. That's the best way to keep in touch with all of this information as it comes. Um, but here's what I'd like for you to do this week. First, check your calendar and pick a day, Tuesday at 3 o'clock or Thursday at 7 o'clock, and uh, write it in on your calendar. Use pen. Save it to your phone. Second, check your email for the video call information. We're going to be using Zoom calls for our video calls. The Vestry has been using it for a while. It allows you to connect it from a smartphone or a laptop like a video chat, or it allows you to use your phone, just your landline, to call in with your voice. Um, and, and we found it to work fairly well, and uh, it's pretty easy for people to jump in on board. So we're going to use Zoom to do that. Stay tuned for email information from Zoom. And the third thing, um, that I'm going to ask you to do is actually join our check-in groups. Come prepared to share a highlight, a low light, and a prayer request, and come pray with other members of your church as we all wrestle with how to navigate this, un, uh, this unknown and unique and remarkable season. If we as a church can commit to checking in regularly throughout this process, I think we're going to find that some of that tension and some of that frustration of our quarantine will begin to lift. And you'll have access again to a community of believers who are co-sufferers in this season with you. And you'll find that Jesus has promised that he'll be with us when two or three are gathered together in his name. It's true online, like it is in person. So check your emails for more information. I'm excited to begin season two, our new season of ministry in quarantine with you all. In the meantime, hear this benediction as we close our service together. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be with you now and remain with you always, amen. Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.